0: Well, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry Todd's not here this weekend, and I'm sorry for the circumstances, of course, of his mother's passing. I love listening to him. Um, But when Todd 1's not here, you get Todd 2. So I look forward to Todd 1 normally. Boy, the passages this week are rich, and for someone speaking, it's very hard to... uh, There's probably 10 sermons in these passages. But I wanted to focus us on the Colossians passage today. So if you have that near you, you could pop that open in your program, or in your Bible, Colossians 3. The uh, town of Colosse was, uh, which is now what we would call in Turkey, wasn't a huge town. Uh, Laodicea nearby was kind of the big city. But Colossae would have had a few synagogues in it for the Jewish population. There would have been some uh, probably mystery religions in town, people who had kind of secret rites, maybe formed around cultish figures like Demeter or Dionysus. And there would have been just some traditional pagans who worshipped the other Greek gods, hoping that if they did so, that it would rain and their crops would grow and things would go well for them. And so you drop this little church, young church, into the midst of all this. And of course, there would be some confusion. These young Christians, this young Christian church, trying to figure out, who they are amidst all of these religious attractions. With the Jews maybe saying, well, you're not really fully the people of God unless you participate in these laws. Or the Greek mystery folks saying, well, you're not really entering into the depth of religions unless you get initiated into our group. And all of them uh, inviting them in or attracting them or drawing them and the people of God feeling like, where do we go? To whom do we go? And so Paul writes in this letter to reassure them that, you know what, Christ is enough for you. Christ is the only place you have to look. The church is your home, and your life is hidden with God. You just need to keep going in that direction. Let the maturity in Christ, in the church, unfold. I was on a plane recently again, and I don't know if you experienced this, about 30 minutes out from your destination, the plane begins its kind of gradual descent. You know, the pilot comes on and says, okay, we're beginning our descent in Los Angeles. And and then you feel like the plane's kind of on some kind of escalator that's almost automatic. It seems like a little down, a little down further, and, and, and the, the speed is getting adjusted. You feel kind of like you're locked into some kind of, uh, you know... I'm not a sci-fi person, but some kind of tractor beam that's pulling you toward Los Angeles. So I actually talked to one of my friends who flies for FedEx, Mark Vaughn, and I said, you know, at that point, who's actually flying the plane? Is it the control tower or is it you? And he said, well, no, there is this thing called the ILS, the instrument landing system, that, yeah, within about 30 minutes, the control tower's computer kind of locks on the plane and begins automatically adjusting its speed and altitude, and he says there's a joke now uh, among pilots that the pilot of the future will be, it'll be a pilot and a dog. The dog is there to bite the pilot if the pilot tries to adjust anything. So. <laughs> but actually, he said that's not the case because actually the pilots still have quite a bit of control and they need to because sudden gusts of wind can come in. There can be sudden obstacles on the ground or in the air. So the pilot actually, even though it's kind of locked into this ultimate destination, the pilot really needs to cooperate and be fully awake and vigilant and certainly resist any impulses of his or her own, you know, to suddenly fly to Vegas or Hawaii or something, you know. So the pilot needs to cooperate with something that it's already heading toward or locked into. And so I love it when Paul says to the church of Colossae, you know what, your life is hidden with God already. And actually that may be more than metaphorical. It could be that part of us, actually part of our soul, is already with God and Christ. That when it says we are seated in the heavenly places, that's not just a way of saying that, well, you know, you have a reservation. That there's part of us that is with Christ already. It's something in theology called kind of realized eschatology and already and not yet. Certainly Christ is with us already. So there's a sense in which We are already moving that direction, and what remains for us is to cooperate with the journey, to do our part, to let that unfold. And indeed, it is not just the destination, but the fact that we are meant to actually enjoy the journey now, that the destination is already here and not yet. The kingdom of God is breaking out here among us, and we get to experience that now. As we move toward our lives hidden with Christ. So what do we need to know to do to cooperate? And especially to enjoy this journey together as a community. To be formed for the journey. Because you know we're going to go there anyway. If you have Christ. If you've invited Christ to kind of come into your life. And you say I want you to be my Lord. I want my life to be hidden with you. Then you are on a journey. But what do we need to know about this journey? Well I love it that Paul says. First of all to the Colossians in chapter 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. By the way, above does not mean to be away from the earth necessarily. Of course, to set our mind on things above is to set our mind on the kingdom of God. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy earth be done. So it's not so much setting our hearts above, but to set our hearts on how the kingdom of God is meant to be lived out here as it is being lived out above. Set your heart on it. You know, we don't have to be told to set our heart on things. This is what a heart does automatically. That's what, that's what a heart does. The heart sets itself on things. It can't help it. I was sitting with my very young niece, Nellie. I think she's a few months old, not walking yet. She was on my lap and my wife was sitting next to me and uh, Nellie just reached out and grabbed my wife's finger. <laughs> I don't think she knew whose finger it was, but, she, but that's what babies do, they grab fingers. They grab things, they grab glasses, they grab anything they can grab. That's a little bit like the heart. The heart's job is to grab something. It's to set itself on something. See, advertisers know this. Our advertisers are theological anthropologists, whether they believe in God or not. Because they know that anthropologically, we are designed to grab things. They know it's kind of how we're designed. That we are natural lovers. We look for something to want. And so that's the first point today. As we move toward our lives hidden with Christ, as we enjoy the journey, you and I have to realize that our hearts are looking for something to set on, to grab. And there are so many things in our culture to grab. That's what runs our economy. We're constantly being given things to grab, and many of them are good things. Some of them not so great. But our hearts are on the hunt for something to set themselves on, to grab. That's the first point. The second point for the journey is that we often learn what to want by imitating other people's desires. That there's a real communal aspect to teaching our hearts what to grab. We imitate other people's desires. Maybe this happened to you in high school. So let's take, for example, um, a couple girlfriends. And one of the girlfriends confides in another. She's kind of attracted to this guy that they know. The other girl, listening, suddenly has an epiphany. I hadn't thought to be attracted to that person, but now that you are, I kind of am too. (laughs) It's called a love triangle. I hadn't thought to desire that person, but now that you're desiring it, I kind of desire it too. We imitate desire. We are looking around for what do people want because I want to want something, so what are people wanting these days? That's kind of how we work. And of course, this... Suggest to us the power of community. That the group around us at any given time is going to probably develop some consensus in what to want and we will imitate them. We will imitate the desires of those around us because that's just what the heart does. So the first point is that we are natural lovers, natural wanters, natural desirers. And this is how we were made. And so we naturally look for something to grab, to set our hearts on, And we imitate the desires of those around us. And here's the third point. While there certainly are an unlimited number of things to desire in this world, and they're proliferating every day, there's really, in the end, only one thing that everyone wants. Okay, be thinking. What's in your mind? What is the one thing everybody wants, whether they know it or not? Well, here's my answer. And I think it's a biblical one. I think everybody wants glory. So, just like we were made to be lovers, you and I were made to experience glory. But let me define it. What is glory? Well, it can happen every day at some point, and here's usually when we experience glory glory breaks out when people notice something good, they recognize its attractiveness or desirability, and then typically express approval and praise. Does this sound familiar? I'll read it again. Glory kind of happens. When you and I notice something that's good, we recognize that it's desirable and attractive, and then we typically express that to somebody else. In California, you know someone's experiencing glory when they say, That's awesome. I had a British friend who was visiting from London, and we were talking, and I think I said something was awesome. And she goes, oh, Say that again. I love it when Californians say that. That's awesome. I was with some Australians years ago, and they, their phrase was, that's magic. Wow, look at that. You should go see that film. It's magic. So glory is happening there. People are experiencing glory. They recognize something that's good, and it's natural. And, and because it's good, it has a certain glory to it. It happens every day. Things that are good deserve Glory. Good things deserve glory, and kind of glory breaks out publicly when people start talking about it and praising it. That is an experience of glory. It's the experience of something good that people are sharing and even getting to share in. See, we get to experience glory sometimes if it's connected to us. That's why we Instagram. Because something's happened to us that is cool and attractive. That's magic. That's awesome. And we text it and... People get to glorify us and we get to be connected to it. We get to experience glory. And that's fine, that's great, that's how we're created. My daughter, one of my daughters just got back from Thailand and and she went to a tiger farm and she sent a picture of her petting an adult tiger. Um, I said, Abby, I just have three words for you. Siegfried and Roy. Um, No longer too soon. Um, But you know, it was awesome. (laughs) And there was a close-up of the tiger's face, and it was just beautiful. I mean, best makeup ever. And it was real, just beautiful. It was like, this is so, God's design is so good, and it deserved to be praised. And then Abby being so close to it, it's like she got to share in the glory of the tiger. My other daughter uh, found herself at the party the other night with a, um, my my other daughter is like a Lord of the Rings, virtually a scholar, and she's an artist, and so she found herself sitting with an animator from the Lord of the Rings, one of the chief animators talking at this gathering. And it was like, this person was great at this. The film was great, and there was a sense of glory because it was a good thing. And she got to kind of sharing it by talking with that person. And him actually telling her, you know, you should consider going into this. You should consider getting good at this and enjoying the glory, not empty glory, but the real glory of doing something that's, that's well done. Now, of course, some things don't deserve as much glory as they get. So I had a friend, too, a girl named Olivia, who went to, um, I forget where she was, but a fellow had a jaguar on a leash in a public place, and you go and get your picture taken with the jaguar. And again, it's that moment of, this is amazing, the human and the beast coming together, the peace, the amazing goodness of that, and Picture taken, tweeted, or whatever, snapchatted, and then the jaguar bit her. (laughs) Sent her to the hospital. Okay, not glorious. (laughs) Okay, I guess you're feeling that because I was meant to be funny. But you guys are going, "Ooh, ouch!" Yeah, that's an appropriate response as well. People we may get to know who have a certain particular skill that is glorious. When you scratch on their lives a little more, you find out, ah, but you know, their lives aren't that good. So while their skill is worthy of glory, we, we suddenly realize they're being over-glorified. They're getting too much glory because when you scratch on it, since glory relies on the essential goodness of something, it's like, oh, this is a little bit of false advertising. It's called, in, in more ancient terms, vain glory, empty glory. Things that get too much glory because when you get in them, the glory doesn't quite match the actual goodness of the thing. And of course, we see this in celebrity culture, right? Celebrity culture, I mean, a lot of glory and praise, and they do some things quite well. Athletics, acting, singing, and that deserves a certain amount of glory. But often the glory is overexpressed, and you get close and you realize, "Ooh, there's some vain glory there. That is to say empty. The goodness of it doesn't quite deserve the glory that seems to be celebrating it. And what happens in those times? We get disappointed. Why do we get disappointed when those people who seem so glorious turn out to be not as glorious? Well, I'll tell you why. And this is the next point. We are born worshipers. We are looking for something to worship. We're looking for something to set our hearts on. We imitate other people's desire because we want to know what to want. We all really are looking to share in some glory of thing that's truly good. And you know what? That makes us born worshipers. We're all looking for something to worship. And so the question will be, what can bear the weight of our worship? What, in the end, is truly good? There are many good things in life that deserve a certain amount of glory. Because they're good. A well-made table deserves a certain amount of glory to the table and the carpenter. But what can sustain the weight of glory that we seek to worship? Well, Paul says in Colossians set your hearts on the things above where Christ is. (laughs) Jesus's goodness is worthy of glory. Jesus can bear the weight of our worship because he is good. And it's not just Jesus, you notice in this passage, but it is Jesus seated at the right hand of God, Jesus next to God. And so it is Jesus in a certain relationship to God that is good and here we think of our genesis passage where what is the glorious thing is that we have a god who is three persons so what is good is not just jesus but god in relationship with himself union is good the union of people relationships are the things that reveal god's glory i love second 2 corinthians 217 That we, with unveiled faces, contemplating the Lord's glory, contemplating the goodness of Jesus, looking at it. This is Mary in our passage today, looking at the goodness of Jesus. As we look at the goodness of Jesus, which is here called glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. (laughs) We are actually sharing in that glory. As we look at something beautiful, it is bringing the beautiful thing out of us, which comes from the Lord who is a Spirit. We are achieving our end of sharing in the glory. It is what we seek. To share in the goodness of something. To become good. To let the contemplation of Christ pull this out of us. I love it what Tolkien said after, uh, you know, the... Tolkien, Lewis, Williams, others, they had this little group of writers called the Inklings in Oxford. They'd come and read their stuff to each other. Charles Williams was one of them. He was a novelist, among other things. And and Williams um, passed away. And Tolkien repeatedly said to the group, um, you know, I'm not only going to miss Charles, but I'm going to miss that part of us that Charles brought out. You see, Charles brought out some goodness in them, something that was worthy of glory. And together, this was a glorious meeting because there was such goodness, apparently, in their group. But they brought it out of each other. So it is with our relationship with God. God brings out of us the good things that are worthy of glory, and we feel glorified. We feel like we are sharing in that glory. And so this is what it is, what we are to want This is what we are to set our hearts on, our relationships of union and communion with God, but not just with God. For God has given us the body of Christ to live in communion with and to bring out of one another the goodness that is a share in Christ's glory. And so Paul will spend the rest of Colossians 3 instructing us how to learn to live together. How to learn the goodness of compassion. Because isn't it true that real compassion is such a good? When you see real compassion, it is such a good that you want to talk about it. You want to glorify it. And you even now want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of real compassion because of the glory and goodness. Not vain glory, not attention to myself. Just that I'm experiencing something good. This is really good. This is really worthy of praise, compassion is. We want to experience humility. We love humility. We love when people recognize that there is value in everyone and even use their privilege to help someone else succeed. We find that beautiful. We find that good. We find that worthy of praise, and we want to be a part of it. I want to share in the glory, the goodness seen in Christ, manifested in in one another. I want to learn that. Where there has been hurt and there is real forgiveness, there is such goodness. And we say, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of pseudo-community, people who just decide to go their own ways. I want to be a part of something that is so good. I want to be, have a share in that glory of that goodness. So where do we learn these things? Well, Paul says, set your heart on Christ. And then in essence, he says, set your heart on the church. Because here you will learn to imitate one another's desire for God. Here the peace of Christ can rule. Here the word of God is dwelling. And again, I'm just quoting from Colossians 3 now. If you want to set your heart on Christ and the goodness and glory of Christ, set your heart on the church where the church is working in and out. And I know for many of you, the church has not necessarily been a place like that. We will fail one another. And some of you have been hurt. And you know what Paul is saying is, well, you know, your heart is going to set on something. And it's going to really work hard to get it because that's what hearts do. So if you're going to work hard at something, work hard at this. Set your heart upon the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ. Set your heart upon the goodness of glory that can be in his church. Because in the end, it is union and communion that we really want. The goodness and glory of union and communion. My daughter said the other night, we have some family in town, and she came back from a family event, and she goes, you know what, it was just good being with everybody tonight. And, you know, my family's, you know, <laughs> flawed. There are flaws. But her instinct was, this is good being together and enjoying the goodness. It wasn't something spectacular. It was something solid and good, and it had glory in it. This is what we are formed for. Because the church isn't something out there that we step into. It's us. We need to be formed as people who learn the goodness of real compassion, the goodness of forgiveness, the capacity for humility. Because as we let it form us, we experience goodness. We experience the glory of God. That is what we are meant to set our heart on. That is what we seek. So in the time, a little interlude we have, I just want you to kind of recall a time when you've experienced the goodness and glory of communion with others, with other believers. And if you have no experience of that, then just try to imagine it. What would it be like to be part of a body of Christ in which humility, compassion, forgiveness, union, the goodness of relationships before a good God exist? And for a moment, just let your heart be set on it.